Today we continue to look at one of the great texts of Scripture. The great theme of Scripture is Christ. 66 books all about Christ. The whole story is about Him. But in much of the Scripture in the Old Testament, which takes up about two-thirds of our Bible, that great theme is a little more concealed, a little more shadowy. There's types, there's hints, there's images it's still all about Christ. It's still all building toward him. But it's only in the Gospels of the New Testament that the person and work of Christ finally burst forth in great clarity. And so as we trace and track him in the Gospels from his birth to the three year of his ministry to his death and resurrection, we see him. We learn of him. And by the grace of God, we learn to love him. But... Even with just the Gospels, we don't yet know everything we need to know. The New Testament doesn't end with the Gospels. You tend to either be a Gospel person or an Epistles person. Be both. We need both of these things. Jesus was a great teacher, but he didn't come first to teach. He came to die. He left it to his apostles, especially to Paul, to teach about the meaning and the purpose of that Death to further unpack who Jesus is and what he has done. Christ came to accomplish, Paul came to explain. And in our passage this morning, we have one of the clearest and most glorious explanations of Christ. This is Mount Everest. This is the pinnacle of theology. We are concerned with doctrine because doctrine is concerned with God. We want to know God. That's what Jesus tells us is eternal life in John 17, 3, knowing God. We know God through Christ. We know Christ through the word. And this word particularly shows us Christ so that we can know him and love him better. So we started it last time. We'll finish it today. Verses 5 through 11 is the whole passage. Remember, it breaks down very simply. Verse 5, we have an exhortation. Have this mind. Then in verses 6 through 8, we have the humiliation of Christ. He was laid low. Then in verses 9 through 11, we have the exaltation of Christ. He was lifted high. And we want to see the connection between those two. How humiliation results in exaltation. And how that could be an encouragement to the Philippians and to us. Remember our context. This is all in the context of an imperative a command. Paul wants the church to be united. He wants them humbly uh, helping and serving one another. But we humans don't tend to be very naturally humble, helpful, and united. We are naturally prideful, selfish, and separated. How in the world can a disparate bunch of prideful, selfish, separated sinners, talking about us, me, talking about the Philippians, talking about all of us, how can such a group be united? Only by having the mind of Christ uh, through the grace of God. And that mind, which we saw last week, good news, we do have if we are in Christ. Union with Christ is everything. Paul is not telling us the thing that we need to stir up within ourselves and accomplish and achieve on our own. He's reminding us, comforting us, encouraging us about what has been accomplished and achieved on our behalf in Christ. Because Christians are those who are in Christ, who are so united to him that we are in him and he in us. Whatever is his becomes ours. The mind which is his, by grace, becomes ours. So this amazing unity and humility that we see in Christ is ours by virtue of our union with him. So in verses 6 through 11, Paul is saying, this is who Christ is. You are in him. Therefore, this is who you are in him. Therefore, act like it. Live like it. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And so the way that we foster and develop unity and humility and helpfulness is by looking to Christ. By reminding ourselves who he is and what he has done. By delighting in those truths, resting in those truths, and then living out those truths. So this morning, and all we want to do is we simply seek to study and stare at Christ. And we do all of that through the word of God. Glory is revealed through reading. We want to see, we want to, by the grace of God, love, and then we want to live. 
So let's again look at Christ. We've seen his humiliation, which is all the more astounding because of his identification. He was in the form of God. He was God, but he didn't seize that equality. He didn't utilize it for his own advantage. He humbled himself by taking on flesh, by becoming a man. That's the incarnation, and the point of the incarnation is the crucifixion. He humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's where we left it. But praise God, that's not where he left it. Let's read the passage again. This is the exaltation of Christ. If you look in your outline there, the first point is not Christ's exhortation. It's Christ's exaltation. Again, the first point is Christ's exaltation. He's lifted high. We'll see that. Then we'll see man's confession. And then we'll see God's glorification. Let me read the passage for you. This is the most important part. Philippians chapter 2. We're looking at verses 5 through 11, focused on 9 through 11. But this is what God wants to say to you today. Verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, by being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. If you would, bow with me and let's, let's begin this time first with a word of prayer. Father, as we just sang, we ask for you now to reveal your glory through the preaching of your word. Father, I, myself, in my own power, cannot reveal your glory. Father, you, through your spirit, through your word, has infinite power to reveal your glory to us. Father, help me. Father, I pray that I would be set aside. I pray that you would speak. I pray that your glory would be clear. I pray that you would grab our hearts and our minds in a way that I cannot do. Father, we ask this morning that you would show us Christ. And we ask this in his name. Amen. All right, we're picking up in the middle of the text with verse 9. And the transition point between the first part of the passage and the second part. And the transition point is that perf perf important word, therefore. And that means that whatever is to come is linked in some way to whatever has come before. The exaltation of Christ, Paul is directly linking it to the humiliation of Christ. Christ humbled himself and died. He brought himself low. Therefore, God exalted him. He brought him high. The exaltation of Christ is because of the humiliation of Christ. And it seems completely backwards to us. It's the exact opposite of what we're used to. We live in an exaltation-obsessed world. People have always had heroes. But more so than ever, we live in a celebrity-obsessed culture. For some reason, we care a lot about these strangers that we do not know and that do not care about us at all. Yet, you follow them on Instagram. We read magazines about them. Our news, if you really pay attention, is largely about what celebrities are doing. Celebrities now speak in front of Congress. Celebrities now meet with the president. None of it makes any sense. And we devote our entire lives to these celebrities. We love to exalt them. And what is it that we exalt? We exalt greatness. Or we exalt what we at least perceive to be greatness. We exalt the beautiful and the powerful and the most successful. And then as we see that the world exalts that type of greatness, we desire to be exalted. Everyone wants to be exalted. We then begin to pursue those things that the world has told us will bring us recognition, honor, and glory. So we start to pursue the world's definition of greatness. We pursue it in trying to display how beautiful we are on Instagram in hopes that we'll get a couple of thumbs up that will exalt us and affirm us. We kill ourselves at work, striving for the next promotion or the next raise because we believe that then we will be great and exalted. We become excessive, obsessive parents, not because we want what's best for our children, but because we want to be exalted as a great 
parent. We exalt greatness. Verse 9. You see, God exalts humility. Jesus humbles himself. He becomes a slave. He dies. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. And this is the gospel order. This is how it always works. This is in part why people hate the gospel. It makes no sense to our power, greatness, self-sufficiency, obsessed world. We hate humility and we praise pride. Good grief. This whole month, if you're not aware, is called Pride Month. The biggest pride flag in the city's history was just created on the steps of the memorial at the bottom of Roosevelt Island. Two of the things that our culture most celebrates are things that scripture most condemns. We praise pride. What about Jesus? Matthew 23, 12. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And whoever humbles himself will be exalted. That's the order. That's exactly what's happening in our passage. Jesus is experiencing the very thing that he taught. Some of you don't quite get this whole Jesus thing yet because you have been told that it's just believing some stuff about Jesus that makes you a Christian. It's just faith. Listen, it is just faith. We have just failed to understand what faith really is. Some of you, in light of this verse, desperately need to learn what it means to deny yourself. Our world says, affirm yourself. Jesus says, deny yourself. Our world says, treat yourself. Jesus says, die to yourself. The church often says, hey, you know, believe some things about Jesus. Pray this prayer. Walk this aisle. Jesus says, Matthew 16, 24, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. See, Jesus' language? Deny. Die. That's faith. That's what it means to actually follow Jesus. That's what it means to humble yourself. But if, like the world, you continue to exalt yourself, Jesus says very clearly, you will be humbled by God. But if, like Christ, you humble yourself, we'll see at the end that you will be exalted by God. We say what goes up must come down, but here we're seeing that it's actually what goes down will come up. The way up is down. The way to life is death. The way to the crown is the cross. The way to exaltation is humiliation. Do we believe that? Does our life reflect that? Christ is showing us the way here. Remember, he is our example. His life is our pattern to follow. We know, again, from verse 5, not in our own power, but in his power. So is your life one characterized by humility or by pride? Is your life more about affirming yourself or denying yourself? Is your life more about you or about him? The way to exaltation is humiliation. We just read that passage in Isaiah. We'll come to that in a second. Isaiah is a wonderful book. You're intimidated by Isaiah. Don't be intimidated by Isaiah. Read it. It is worth your time, and it's worth the work that it takes. Very generally, the first part of the book is about God's judgment of his people. The second part is about God's salvation of his people. And the highlight of the second part are these servant songs about this one that is to come and deliver God's people. And in Isaiah 52, 13, we read this about the servant who is to come. He says, Behold, my servant shall be high and lifted up, and he shall be exalted. But guess what that verse is an introduction to? Isaiah 53. He shall be high and lifted up, and I exalted Isaiah 53. Where we see in such graphic detail that the Lord's servant is the Lord's suffering servant. He shall be high and lifted up. Just a few verses later, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. That's the one who was on high and lifted up. That's precisely why he was high and lifted up. He bled and died to take away my sin. How great thou art. He humbled himself. 
therefore God highly exalted him. But look at the second part of verse 8. What does it mean that this name was bestowed upon him? That word bestowed kind of sounds like he's being, is he being given something that he previously did not have or possess? By no means, Paul would say. John 17, 4 through 5, the high priestly prayer. Jesus prays to the Father. Father, I glorified you on earth. We're going to come to glory at the end. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. You see, Jesus already had the very glory of God, because as we saw last week, he was God. So is there any difference here? More high priestly prayer. Jesus goes on in verse 24. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given to me, us, may be with me where I am. Why? To see my glory that you have given me, because you have loved me before the foundation of the world. You see, he had the glory. Now that glory is more magnificently and clearly displayed. He had the name, and it is now even more clearly known. This is not Christ's assumption of glory, but this is Christ's resumption, resumption of glory. As God, he had it. Now as the God-man, he is exalted to his position of supreme power and authority and glory, having obediently and perfectly accomplished his mission, having rescued his people, he now sits down at the right hand of the Father because his work is finished. The king is on his throne. Okay, that's what Sunday school was about. That was confusing. He's on his throne now. He's ruling and he's reigning now. The servant who suffered is sovereign. God has highly exalted Christ. Exaltation. Now we turn to us. Point number two. We move from the exaltation of Christ to the confession. Or it could have been adoration. Or it could have been the submission of man. Look at verse 10. God has done this so that at the name of Jesus Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Christ is Lord. This should have probably been uh, two points, if we ever had enough time. Verse 10 is submission. Jesus is exalted. Every knee bows. Bowing is a sign of humility. Bowing is a sign of submission. Remember that the word literally means to get low, related to the word for ground. Well, that's what you're literally doing as you, as you bow, right? You're getting low to the ground as a sign of your submission to the one that is above, to the one that is exalted. Above is the position of power and authority. Bowing before that is the recognition of and submission to that power and authority. And don't miss who it is that submits here. This is important. It's every knee, everyone, pas, P-A-S, every, is a very important word in the New Testament. And it means all or every. Sometimes it actually means every kind of, and it's the context that determines how the word is used. And it's important to understand that to get this right. We quote 1 Timothy 6.10 a lot. The love of the money, the love of money is a root of pas, evil. Does that mean that the love of money is the root of all evil? Well, no, it can't. That, that doesn't make any sense. Gentlemen, the love of money is not the root of your addiction to pornography. It's not. And let's be clear, that is an evil. Right? We looked Wednesday night at the sobering word from Hebrews 13.4, so this has been on my mind, that God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Man, we need to start taking seriously the wickedness and the evil of pornography. Hey, I know it's a problem for ladies, too. So ladies, if that's you, I'm, in, I'm including you uh, as, as well. And we need to kind of start acting as if sort of it's not that big of a deal because, you know, everybody, everybody does it. No, it's a big deal, right? God will judge the sexually immoral, the verse says. Isn't evil. Repent. Get help. 
come talk to me. Uh, go talk to Mike. But the point, I just got to throw that in there because I know it's such a fact. The point is that the love of money is not the root of that evil. The love of money is not the root of all evil, but the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. So context determines what this word pas means. What does it mean in our passage? Well, this time it literally means every and all. And just to make sure we don't miss that, Paul makes it very clear because he provides the context. Look at it. He tells us what he means by pas in heaven and on the earth and under the earth. Every. You cannot be more comprehensive than that. Above. Here. Below. Above. The righteous souls who have died and are presently with Christ. Remember back in 124, Paul's desire is to depart, to die, because if he dies, he will be with Christ. So everyone up there. Then he says, here. Everyone who is here. So all of us, uh, the saints who are living, the righteous and the wicked who are still living. And then below, the wicked souls who have died and been damned. Everyone will bow. Everyone will see and submit. Every knee shall bow. Some willingly and joyfully in delight at the return of the delivering king. Some grudgingly and remorsefully in dread at the return of the conquering king. But you will bow. He has been exalted. He is the king. You either bow now and humble yourself, or and you will be exalted upon his return, or you stand now and you exalt yourself, and you will be humbled and bowed upon his return. But whether or not you bow is not a question. Paul's clear, you will bow. Because Christ is the king. Will you do it now? Or will you be bowed then? But there's more. Every knee won't just bow. But also, verse 11. Every tongue will confess. So there's a posture and a profession. There's submission and confession. Both the body and the mind, all of us, are involved. So the mind or heart whatever you want to call it, confesses through your tongue. There is a direct connection between tongue and heart. Don't do this, husbands and wives, when you fight. Don't ever say, after you've said something spiteful and sinful, ah, oh, well, you know, I didn't really mean it. Yes, you did. That's the problem. That's why you said it. You may wish that you hadn't have said it. You may wish that you hadn't been caught. You may wish that you weren't now exposed and that you could take it back. Because now the secret's out. Now you're busted. But you only say what you mean. Right? Your, your tongue is an expression of your heart. Matthew 12, 34. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Mouth reveals heart. Confession is expression of heart. That's how it always works. So everyone will confess. But what will they confess? Well, let's go back to the name. I skipped the name. We left it hanging. God bestowed on him the name that is above every name. What name? Verse 11. It tells us that Jesus Christ is Lord. And man, we, we just, we are so tragically inoculated to that term. that It's almost become meaningless to many of us. It's more of a swear today than a swearing of allegiance. It's more of a curse than a confession. But this confession was of the utmost significance to the early church. This humble Jesus, the Jesus of verses 6 through 8, the Jesus who hung naked on a cross, was Lord. And that name meant everything to them. And it cost them something to confess it. In a time when the universal confession was Caesar is Lord, to confess that Jesus is Lord was to claim that Caesar was not. And that was a dangerous thing to claim. Uh, the early Christians lived surrounded constantly by the reminders of lordship. To say that Caesar was lord was to say that he was the king. He had all the authority. He had all the power. What he says goes. He tells you to do something, you do it, or you die. He has absolute rights over his subjects. What he wants, he gets. No questions. 
The title, Lord, uh, Kyrios in the Greek, means master, ruler, sovereign. And Paul is saying that all that is true of this Jesus. He is the king. He has all the authority. He has all the power. What he says goes. He tells you to do something, you do it. Maybe the invitation language isn't the most helpful language. Kings don't really give invitations. Kings command. He, he tells us. He, what he says goes. You do it. He has absolute rights over his subjects. What he wants, he gets. No questions. Jesus is Lord. And don't miss that Paul refers to that as Jesus' name. And technically, it's a title, but it's not just a title. I think some people think they're, they're not taking the Lord's name in vain when they say God or Lord. Well, you know, it's just a title, um, not a name. Uh, but Paul knows that Lord is so much more than a title. Paul knows his Old Testament. Remember, the Septuagint is just the ancient Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures. And it seems to be this Greek of the Hebrew Scriptures that Paul primarily used. Well, this word kurios that he's using in this passage, Lord, appears over 6,000 times in the Old Testament. And the vast majority of them are the translation of the divine name Yahweh. When you read your Old Testament, every time you see the word Lord in all capital letters, that's Yahweh. That's God's personal covenantal name. And the Jews came to believe that God's name was so holy that they shouldn't use it. And so they substituted the Hebrew word Adonai, Lord. So in the Bible that the early church would have been using, remember they didn't have the New Testament. Paul was preaching and proving Christ to them from the Old Testament because the Old Testament is about Christ. And so they would have very much understood that using Lord would be the name of God. Paul and the early Christians took the name Lord and they applied it to Jesus. So in raising Jesus from the dead, God highly exalted him and bestows upon him God's own name because Jesus is God. And so this again is an explicit claim to the deity, the Godhood of Christ. We've already seen one in verse 6. He was in the form of God, which means in the verse 6, he was equal with God. He was God. Now here in verse 11, he is given God's very name. Jesus is Lord. And with every knee bowing and every tongue confessing, it is clear that Jesus is Lord of all. He's Lord. Paul says the same thing. Romans 14, 11. As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. In both of those spots, in our passage and in Romans 14, Paul is quoting from what we read earlier in Isaiah 45. Isn't that a wonderful passage? Isaiah 45 is fantastic. All of Isaiah is. Read it. It's on page 606 if you want to look at it. Again, Paul, he, Paul is quoting Isaiah 45. Look at verse 15 of Isaiah 45. I'm going to jump around a little bit. Here's what we read. Here's how it starts. It says, Truly, you are a God who hides yourself, O God of Israel, the Savior. So he's speaking to God. Verse 17, Israel is saved by the Lord, all caps, by Yahweh with everlasting salvation. Verse 18, I am the Lord, all caps, Yahweh, and there is no other. Verse 21, and there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and Savior. Verse 23, to me, every knee shall bow and every tongue swear allegiance. Don't miss that. In Isaiah, an Old Testament book written hundreds of years before the birth of Jesus, God is talking. And God is talking about himself as Lord and Savior and saying, I am the one to whom every knee shall bow. 
This is in a section of Isaiah that's sort of like God versus the gods. It's the one true God versus all the other false gods. And God is making it clear that there is no other God. The whole point of this passage is that there's only one God and every knee shall bow to him and every tongue shall confess to him. He is that one God. And Paul takes that, that passage, and he applies it to Christ. He says, this is that one God. If you are ever interacting uh, with Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, we were talking about this on Wednesday night with Dion, who's talking with some Jehovah's Witnesses. This is a great text to go to. Uh, Jehovah's Witnesses are well prepared, and they prepare themselves better than we prepare ourselves. They have rote responses to the texts that they're used to getting. So if you meet a Jehovah's Witness, hey, don't use John 1.1. They're ready for John 1.1. Don't waste your time. You've got to be creative. They deny that Jesus is God. And so we need to use texts like these that they tend to be less familiar with. And that even in the New World Translation is their translation of the Bible where they change parts and take stuff out and add some things to try to mask some of what the Greek says. Um, but even in their Bibles that make it, they try to make it less clear that Jesus is God. Ask them to read Isaiah 45 and then ask them who it is talking about. God and then ask them to read Philippians 2, 9 through 11, and ask them who it is talking about. And they will say, Jesus, because Jesus is God. He is Lord. That's the confession that demonstrates the submission. Now consider Romans 10, 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you will be and again, it's not, it's not confessed just Lord. Notice the connection there between Lord and salvation in that verse. A lot of people think that's implied in Philippians 2 as well, because if you notice in Isaiah 45 how much it says that God is Lord and Savior. Lord and Savior. Remember, Christ is not Jesus' last name. It means Messiah. It means the Anointed One, the One who would save God's people. Jesus' name itself, Matthew 1.21, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. That's what the name Jesus, which is just the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew Joshua, means. Sometimes I hear people say, oh, you know, it's kind of strange that Spanish people use the name Jesus or Jose. Well, that's what Joshua is. It's the same thing. Right? It's the same name. Greek is just the Hebrew, or is the, what? Jesus is the Greek of the Hebrew Joshua, and it means Yahweh is salvation, or Yahweh saves. So Jesus is Lord and Savior. And it's the two of those together that makes him all the more remarkable. He is the king. He has all the power, and he has all the authority. What he wants happens. And what does he want? The salvation of his people. And so the king becomes a servant. Jesus, the one who is the exalted one, becomes the lowly, humble one. And he dies for lowly sinners like you and like me. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's the glory of the gospel. That's why Jesus is so highly exalted. And that's why there is none like him. And that is why Acts 4.12, we have to be clear and we can never fudge on this point. There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. No other name. Because no one else deals with sin. None of them did. This is the line of demarcation between believer and unbeliever. It's the recognition and confession and submission to the Lordship of Christ. Have you confessed the name? Have you bowed the knee? Faith includes the knee and the tongue. It includes submission to and confession of the Lordship of Christ. This is where so many go wrong. Everyone, no one wants to go to hell. Nobody. We all love the idea of not going to hell. We all love the idea of avoiding loss and suffering and pain for us, right? Because we all love us. Who doesn't want to avoid that? 
And so then sometimes we preach and people hear, wait, you mean all I have to do is pray that prayer and I'm good to go? Great, sign me up. I see that hand. I see that hand. I see that hand. Welcome to the kingdom, brother. No. Ah, I, I would be very anxious about being the person who has told people that from the pulpit. I think we need to be very careful about that. Because Jesus says, count the cost. Jesus says, take up your cross. Jesus says, deny yourself. Jesus says, die. He is Lord. And faith is simple belief and trust in him. But it is simple belief and trust in him as the Lord. It is submission to the king. To confess that Jesus is Lord is to confess that you're not. And then to actually live like it. It is to renounce your independence and your autonomy and your lordship and give yourself over completely to him. It is submission of self to his will and his word. Somebody called me last night on 9.15 and I was not going to pick up. Moses said, pick up. And so I picked up. I need to write. But then I'm thinking about this passage. I don't want to do it. I got plans. I want to read. I want to relax. I got to get ready for church. Um, so I want to do my own thing. And thankfully, I have a good and godly wife. Go, right? Help, serve others. That's what we're called to do to God. We submit not to our own will, but we submit to his. Again, that wasn't an I did a good thing story. That was I have a good wife story. Right? That's, that's what that was. Have you bent the knee of your heart? Have you actually laid down your lordship and submitted to his lordship? How can you tell? We see confession and we see need. We see posture. Life reflects lordship. Could someone look at your life and tell that you have a lord and that it's not you? Because let's be clear, like Sam was saying, with the idols thing and the worshiping thing, you do have a lord. You have one. We all live to serve somebody or something. There is something that calls the shots for you, that you are living for. And ultimately, there can only be one Lord. You cannot serve both God and money. You cannot serve both God and self. So who is your Lord? He's been exalted. He will be submitted to and confessed. And you will submit either and confess the lordship of the merciful king who comes first to die to save his people, or you will submit and confess to the conquering king who comes second to judge and conquer his enemies. But every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess. Last point. Exaltation of Christ to the confession of man, to the glorification of God. Ultimately, why does God do all this? Why does God, why does Christ do all of this? Why, why the humiliation to the exaltation? Identification to humiliation to crucifixion to exaltation to submission to confession. Why? The last one for glorification. End of verse 11. All of that to the glory of God the Father. Remember that Hebrew word, for glory. That sounds such a good word. It's, I can't even say it right because it sounds like it. It's kabod, kabod, which basically means weightiness. And I like going to the gym. Gym glory is defined by weightiness. How much can I lift? Not very much. Uh, there's a lady in the gym who lifts more than me. It's embarrassing. <laughs> my, my gym weightiness, she's very strong though. My gym weightiness is small, right? Deadlifts, you stand, a lot of weight, you pick it up, you go down, and you drop it. When I drop my deadlifts, nobody notices. Right? <laughs> you don't hear anything, nobody pays attention. But when the big guy that I always watch, uh, four plates on each side, when he drops that weight that much, you hear it. The whole gym shakes and everybody kind of, how much is <laughs> How much has he got there? Like everybody kind of looks. You can see the whole gym. Everyone notice. Everyone takes a peek at the guy lifting that amount of weight. That is gym glory, and it is weightiness. And so when we talk about God's glory, we are talking about his weightiness. 
We're talking about his significance, his everything greatness. Glory is not one attribute of God. It is the sum total of all that he is. The glory of God is the weight of all that he is. It's his fullness, his holiness, his knowledge, his power, his wisdom, his mercy, his goodness. One scholar says it is the infinite excellency of the divine essence. Infinite excellency of divine essence. I call this God's internal glory. It's who he is in all of his greatness and infinite goodness. But scripture always also uses glory in a second way. And we could call this the external glory of God. And the glory of God here is the outward manifestation. It is the display of his infinite excellency. Think of the big guy at the gym. He is big. He is strong. He has gym weightiness. But when he drops that weight, he displays it. Right? You see it. You recognize it. Right? So God's glory is often used to refer to the display of his infinite excellency. It's the revelation of who God is and all his goodness and all his greatness. God is perfectly glorious and his glory is the display of that gloriousness. Internal and external glory. Who he is, the revelation of who he is. And scripture makes it clear over and over again. Everything God does, he does first for his own glory. Isaiah 48, 11, For my own sake, for my own sake, I will do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory will, I will not give to another. God acts first, even in the salvation of people. He says, for my own sake. And there's a hundred passages we could run through. I put some of them in the email uh, this week. But the point is that all of Philippians 2, 6 through 11, is then first and foremost for and about the glory of God. Because God is the infinitely greatest and best being. Because he is the highly exalted one. To be just, to act rightly, he must act first and foremost for his own glory. Because he is the most glorious one. It's not about you. It's about him. And it's through the humiliation and exaltation of Christ that God most clearly reveals his glory. And his greatness. But some of you are thinking, you're hearing, we hear that God acts for his own glory, and we're tempted to think, man, that's arrogant, that's that's selfish. No, because of the passage. Look at the nature of God's acting for his own glory in this passage. The end of verse 11 tells us that it's all about him, it's all about his glory. But what does that consist of? How does he act for us? And for our good. Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and to save us. Do you see how wonderfully we benefit from God acting for his own glory? He is glorified in the saving of his people. He is glorified in the seeking of the good of his people. His glory is not in opposition to our good because our highest good is him. Our problem is that we don't really believe that. But we think our good is found in getting what we want. The problem is that our, we have messed up, sinful, twisted hearts. We don't want the right things. We're sinners. If I let my girls get whatever they wanted, whenever they wanted, it would be nothing but TV, video games, McDonald's, and candy. That would be it. They want that. That wouldn't be good for them. We are like my children. Which means that it is really good news that we have a good father who acts for his own glory, which is actually our chief and primary good. Because God is the highest good. He is what you were created for, to know him. What is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. You see the connection there between glory and joy? Remember, Philippians is the book about joy, gospel-generated joy, this deep-down, settled conviction that all is well and that all is good because of Christ. 
as God pursues his own glory and as we are his and in Christ, he is actually pursuing our own and highest good because the glorification of God results in the good of God's people. He acts, he gets glory, we get good. But I want us to be clear that it's got to be in that order. I want you to notice one last thing and then we'll be done. Look at the passage again, overview. Got to see this because we do it the wrong way. Remember, two parts of the passage, six through eight, humiliation, nine through 11, exaltation. I want you to notice the main subject of each part, not subject in the sense of topic, but subject in the grammatical sense. The subject is the actor. The subject of the sentence is the one performing the action. Notice that there's a subject shift from the first part to the second part. In 6.8, the actor is Jesus. He empties himself. He humbles himself. Jesus acts. But in 9 through 11, the subject, the actor, is the Father. God exalts Jesus. God bestows on Jesus. God acts. Jesus humbles himself. God exalts him. Maybe Maybe you've got your subjects switched. Maybe your problem is that you are trying to exalt yourself. That's what we're doing with social media. That's basically the only thing it's for. Um, maybe some people use it right, but it's mostly um, about self-exaltation. Look at me. Listen to me. I matter. Uh, my opinions matter. You're trying to exalt yourself. Let us all take some advice from Jesus here. Let's take some advice from the grammar. That's not how it works. Jesus doesn't even exalt himself. He is exalted by God. And that's the only way it happens. You want to be exalted. You want to be seen and heard and affirmed and loved. And let's be clear, that's actually good. You were created for that. You were created to need those things. The problem is the way you're trying to get them. The problem is self exaltation when this passage makes it clear that true exaltation comes only from God he's the actor we are not we are not him we are not high so any attempt on our part to exalt ourselves is sinful stupidity but when by the grace of God we humble ourselves God himself the exalted one will exalt us he will lift us up. We already saw Matthew 23. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. So do you see what this passage means for you? Maybe you're still not so sure about this whole humility thing. What's so great about low-mindedness is putting others' interests before our own. Really all it's cracked up to be. I get that. Let's remember how crazy this is. This is about as counter-cultural to the way that the world works as possible. The world is telling you the opposite of this, and you're listening. You're listening through the media and through your smartphone and through all the input of the world. It's not telling you this, and so it's hard to hear for some of us. Low, serve, slave, humiliation. But don't forget the therefore of verse 9. Paul wants you to see that everyone who truly humbles themselves before God will be exalted by God. It's not low, stop, end of story. It's not humiliation, stop, end of story. It's low to high. It's humiliation to exaltation. It's glory through suffering. God sees and he rewards and he exalts. Do you know how great it is to be exalted by someone that you look up to? You've experienced this, right? I've experienced this, right? We crave words of affirmation and praise from the people that we exalt and that we value. I crave such words from my father and from Jeff and from Ed and from my wife. Can you imagine then what it means to be exalted by God himself eternally? That will be indescribably soul-satisfying joy. To hear from God, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master, your Lord. 
Romans 8, 17 says we suffer with him humiliation in order that we may also be glorified with him. Exaltation. That's us, me, you will be glorified with him. The Lord, creator and sustainer of the universe. God is working for his glory and for our good. And he does that work through Jesus Christ, who is highly exalted, who came low to save his people, who was highly exalted so that his saved people could be highly exalted with him. And guys, how do you respond to a king? The king, you bow, you submit. But it's not just because he's only the king. He's the king who serves and saves and gives his life uh, through his death. So you don't just bow and submit. We get to do it joyfully and willingly and gladly because he's glorious and good. And once by the grace of God, we're given the eyes to see that, the glory displayed through the humility, the greatness through the service. You want him. Oh, I want to know him. You desire him. You begin to delight in him. You can then say with David, as we read at the beginning of the service, you are my Lord and I truly have no good apart from you. Can you say that? Let's bow with a word of prayer. Father, give us these eyes to see. Father, you are so glorious and good. Father, we fall so short of your glory. I fall so short of explaining and revealing your glory through the preached word. Father, we are dependent upon you for you to show us your glory uh, through your word. So, Lord, we ask and we pray uh, that you would teach us and that you would show us Christ uh, through his glory. And we ask and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We do have one quick special thing. It's Father's Day. Aloy wanted to bring the kids in. They're going to do a very brief uh, Father's Day uh, presentation. We get to stare at and watch uh, cute little kids um, as we close. So Aloy, come on in, kids. Uh, come on in, and they're going to share briefly with us uh, before we close.